grace and peace to you, church. I'm grateful that you've made worship a part of your week today. Um, is there something going on? I don't know. People keep referring to some sort of sporting event that's going to be happening this afternoon. I'm not that invested in it emotionally, but it'll be fun to eat the chips and the dip and all of the things that, you know, we shouldn't eat. But, you know, I'm out of my January sort of competition with my father-in-law, so I will be indulging today, you know, that I will. <laughs> I did not win. My father-in-law crushed me as... I do that just to let him feel good about himself, but <laughs> we're continuing this morning in our series that we've titled, I Am Jesus in His Own Words, and if you want to read the scriptures with us this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 10, so if you have a Bible, you can flip there, but we're examining these statements, these I Am statements in John's gospel where Jesus reveals to us through this sort of symbolic language that, that sort of fills the pages of scripture about his identity and who he is. And a little bit, if you haven't been here in recent weeks of where we've been, is the first of these statements was, I am the bread of life. And in that statement, Jesus reminds us, and that story reminds us that it's Jesus who satisfies our longings and our cravings. So often we get caught up in pursuing the signs or the things that Jesus can do for us. And in that moment, we're reminded in Jesus' declaration that it's not the miraculous things that I can do for you. It's me who can satisfy the cravings and longings of your heart. In the second week, we talked about this statement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And we were reminded that the world is a dark place and Jesus comes as a light to illuminate the way of life that is you were intended to live. And it's in drawing our life from Christ that we bear witness to this reality of who he is. And last week we talked about the gate. We're reminded that the life that Jesus calls us to is a bigger kind of life. It's not smaller that's shrunk down by religious rules. Rather, it's this way of discipleship that increases our capacity to live in a really large, significant, meaningful, or as Jesus says, abundant life. And this week, we're jumping into the fourth I am statement in John's gospel where he says, I am the good shepherd. And so let's open the scriptures this morning to John chapter 10. I should have had it marked already. Apologies, church. But we're going to be reading verses 1 through 21. That's a lot of verses, but they'll be up on the screen. Jesus teaches us this. He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, it's an amazing thing, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus Use his figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. How many of you ever feel like when you come on a Sunday morning and there's a preacher who preaches, you walk away and you're like, what the heck was that guy talking about? Whenever that happens, I think I'm just like Jesus. Like I'm just teaching in a way that nobody understands what actually is going on or what I'm trying to say. Verse 7, therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. 
I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Amen. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. <laughs> Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. God, we want to understand. We want to have our minds and our hearts illuminated by the truths that your son Jesus was trying to convey when he taught these centuries ago. Give us the grace we need to do that. Amen. Well, earlier this week, I was reading an interview with a man who had been in business most of his life. In the interview, this man sort of expressed the following concerns about contemporary business and business leaders. He said this. He said, the trouble with so many business leaders today is that they're only in it for their own quick profit. Once people were really concerned about making something worthwhile, they were about building up a business, about, making, about looking after their workers. They would hope that their children would carry on the business after them and go on contributing to the well-being of their local community, but now they don't care. They can close a factory in one town and open another one 100 miles away as long as they get their bonus and share options. They don't worry about anything else. In this statement and in this line, there are sort of two ways, according to this guy, about how we might or how one might approach business. You have business for the sake of one's workers and one's community or business for the sake of profit. And how true this man's remarks are, I can't definitively say. Certainly, the accuracy depends on a litany of things, from city to city, from state to state, how friendly one might be in one's community to the business community, politically, oh, we don't need to get into it with California, but from industry to industry, from person to person, they all shape this, but there's this idea, at least in the quote, that there are certain ways of going about business, one that is for the sake of others, or one that is for your own sake, and the quote kind of gets us into the point of what Jesus is trying to say to his audience in the passage that we read this morning. 
Apparently, what was true of contemporary businesses in the 21st century could also be true of shepherds in the first century. The work of shepherding would have been familiar to Jesus' audience. Shepherds, even though they were considered fairly low within the socioeconomic classes of the first century, had a very difficult job, a very difficult kind of business to run. Remember that these shepherds in the first century are quite literally leading their flocks of sheep to pasture and to sources of water in the wilderness where wild animals were hunting and looking for something to eat. And it was the shepherd's job to know where are the watering holes, where are those sources of water that I can lead my sheep to? How do I navigate there in a way that's safe for my sheep? Where are the pastures? Where are the fields out in the wilderness that we haven't been to? And how do I take them in just the right order to these places where they might have something to eat? In fact, we get a picture of how difficult this job was in 1 Samuel, where David, the great king, who was also a shepherd in his younger years, says that he had fought lions and tigers and bears. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't fight lions, tigers, and bears. Just the lions and bears David sort of fought off from thrashing the flock that was under his care. You see, the protecting and leading of sheep, though, wasn't merely a common image in the culture of Jesus' world. It had become a common image used to describe those who protected and led the people of God. You see, early on in the Old Testament narrative, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, they were all shepherds. And so shepherd became a figurative term for the rulers of God's people. These were the ones who were supposed to protect God's people. These were the ones who were supposed to lead God's people. And it turns out that many of these rulers and leaders of God's people were not shepherds at all. In fact, in our passage this morning, they're described as thieves and robbers and uncommitted hired hands. Much like the business leader that seeks their own profit, the wicked shepherds of God's people sought only their self-interest in their position of shepherd. Rather than protect and lead the sheep, they sought affluence and social prestige and political and positional authority over God's people. And it's the contrasting nature of two kinds of shepherds, wicked shepherds and the good shepherd that stands central to our text this morning. And as it turns out, too many of those who sought to rule God's people were anything but good shepherds. You see, before getting to the qualities of the good shepherd, Jesus' parable, in those first five verses, equips us to identify the wicked shepherds that threaten the life of the sheep. In our passage this morning, you can see there's these two sections, if you have your Bibles open. Verses 1 through 5 contain a parable that Jesus is teaching about the good shepherd. And the ensuing verses sort of unpack these images and symbols of what he's trying to convey and say about them. And the picture painted in the parables that we get this, uh, a parable, let me sort of side note this, a parable is a fake story that's used to make a very real point by Jesus. And so it's this sort of hypothetical story that Jesus is using to unpack some deeper theological truth. 
And so the picture that Jesus paints in this parable in the first five verses is that there's this sheep that are held within a gated area. Within the first century, this gated area could have been backed up into a hillside where they kind of use that as a wall to protect the sheep, at least from one side and only have to defend from intruders uh, from the other sides. Uh, It could have been sort of backed up against the exterior wall of the shepherd's home. Sometimes this fenced-in area, though, was out in the open country. But regardless of its location, the fold or enclosure always had a single gate in the first century that the shepherd would use to enter and gather the sheep before he would lead them to food and to water. And last week we discussed how Jesus makes the declaration, I am the gate that leads to pasture. That is to say, the way of life embodied and taught by Jesus leads us to pasture. It leads us to life. It leads us to full and abundant life. And every time we listen and follow the teachings of Jesus, we are entering in through this gate, entering into this way of life. But what Jesus says in the parable, he says, wicked shepherds, though, the thieves and the robbers, those who are just posing as shepherds, as rulers, as leaders of my people, they do not enter the gates. They do not follow the teachings of Jesus. Their life does not look like the life of Jesus. Where they lead will never be full life. It'll never lead to pasture. And in Jesus' teaching this morning, there is little doubt that he is calling out the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, naming them to be the wicked shepherds, the thieves and robbers who do not enter the gates. They proclaim to teach the word of God They maintain a position of religious and political social authority. But these also are the same religious leaders and teachers who had converted the sacrificial system of the temple in Jerusalem into big religious business, robbing the poor blind. They are the same religious leaders who were angry for Jesus healing people on the wrong day. Like, dude, I know you healed a blind guy, but can you do it tomorrow instead or yesterday? Like, why do you have to do it today? They're the same religious leaders who are actively seeking to destroy Jesus in John's gospel. And they are the same religious and political leaders who will persuade the Roman government to execute Jesus in a handful of chapters in John's gospel. Now let me say, I've used some language about religion and politics. One of the things that we have to remember in the first century is that these are conflated into the same positions in Jesus' day. There is no such thing in the first century of this separation of church and state. Those who ruled religiously happened to rule politically as well. And so this this entanglement of these things happening in Jesus' context. And the sheep, Jesus' flock, should not follow, he says, the teachers and leaders who do not show a life of discipleship. The leaders who do not practice a life of Christian discipleship are not worth following for Jesus' sheep. If they have not entered the gate of discipleship, they will not lead you to life that Jesus is talking about here in John 10.10. Or let me clarify this a little bit on myself. A pastor or a Christian teacher who does not enter the gate, who does not regularly practice a life of discipleship is not worth following or listening to if you're trying to seek Jesus. 
The most important thing that you could be examining about my life as a pastor is, does my life look like the life of Christ? It is not about how eloquent I am when I preach or how nuanced my theology is or how, much, how smart you think I am. The, the sort of entry-level quality for any pastor or Christian teacher is this one. Does that person, have they entered through the gate? Do they actively live a life of discipleship? If they don't, if I don't, you're a robber and you're a thief. You are fake and you have nothing to offer the sheep of God. Politicians who promise life and prosperity but whose lives do not look like the life of Jesus, they too are thieves and robbers for God's people. They cannot lead us into the life that Jesus is calling us to. They are hired hands who will not protect you when their own self-interest is at stake. And what we have to be doing as Christian people, as the sheep of Jesus' flock, is assessing those we follow and we, who, who lead on this quality of discipleship in their own lives. When I was in college, I had a professor. He was a church history professor. And if you've ever taken a church history class, you know how uninteresting most of them actually are. But he was probably, in my undergraduate studies, the most challenging professor that I had. He would literally walk into class and he would lecture for an hour and a half straight. There were no PowerPoints. There were no handouts of outlines of the lectures. There was nothing In fact, he used no technology for anything. There were no supplemental uh, instruments for us to learn better. It was listen to my lectures, write everything down, and read every word in every book. And he would test us on the most obscure details of his lectures. And so you literally had to handwrite. You were not allowed to have a laptop at that time. You had to handwrite every word that came out of his mouth because that You never knew exactly what he was going to test you on. His name was Dr. Sanders. And it became a running joke in our class um, that we would refer to him as a wolf in sheep's clothing. (laughs) He was, you see, he had this really gentle demeanor. He would, in fact, even invite our class multiple times each semester to have dinner at his home with his wife and this beautiful little pond that they had in the backyard of their house. And you would think just by knowing him that he was like, oh, man, I'd love to have that guy as a professor in school. But his classes were brutal. They were so brutal. And so many times when it comes to the thieves and the robbers, the hired hands who are not going to lead the sheep well. They have this quality of looking like sheep, but they're actually just the wolves in sheep's clothing. You see, the distinctive quality of leaders and pastors that Jesus' sheep should follow is not something intrinsic to them, but it's caught up in the life of Christ himself. You see, the distinctive quality of the good shepherd is that he lays down his life for the sheep. As Jesus states in verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you were to read the entirety of John's gospel up until this point, you would have noticed that Jesus' life has been endangered repeatedly by those in his world and day. And in this passage, we see that the violent threats are not merely a threatening possibility 
but they're part of his vocation and his mission. Jesus will die. The parable, perhaps clearer than any systematic theology could communicate, tells us why this is part of Jesus' mission in the world. The sheep are facing danger, and the shepherd will go and meet it, and if necessary, he will endure the fate that would otherwise belong to the sheep. He will die instead of the sheep. And as it so happens in the gospel, it was necessary for Jesus to die. And Jesus does lay down his life for the sheep. Several weeks ago, I was fortunate to officiate the wedding of one of my oldest childhood friends. The family next door to us growing up, they had four kids, and we had three, and we were kind of the same age, so we grew up together. And the wedding that I performed or officiated a few weeks ago was the fourth child in that, that our neighbor's household that I was able to officiate. So I'm four for four, and they're all still married now, so I'm feeling great about whatever role I had to play in that. But one of the funky things about officiating weddings for me is how emotional I get as the officiant. And at this last wedding, I'm pretty sure I was holding back more tears than anybody in the wedding party. It was embarrassing. People think I'm just going slow, but I'm trying to catch my breath and compose myself as I read vows for them to repeat. But I'm not sure if it's because I'm recalling in those moments my own vows or if I'm just the super sappy guy, but there's something about the self-sacrificial love being declared in that ceremony that it just gets me every time. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. Every time I lead a couple through those vows, I remember taking them myself. I bawled through my vows, so I don't know if I actually got all the words out, but I remember, I remember in Paige and I's wedding, the officiant, who was my mentor at the time, um, stating to us in the midst of that ceremony, he says, when it comes to your vows, always go first. Always go first in love. Go first in fulfilling your vows. Go first in self-sacrificial love. See, and the distinguishing feature of the good shepherd that we read here in John 10, what makes the shepherd good is that he goes first. Is that the good shepherd goes first in love. He goes first in laying down his life and giving of his life for the sake of the sheep. Or as Paul writes it famously in Romans 5, he says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the laying down of his life isn't in some generic sense. It's intimate, according to Jesus. It's personal. You see, throughout the text this morning, Jesus emphatically insists that he knows his sheep and he knows them by name. And the self-sacrificial love that Jesus displays on the cross isn't merely for the world, it's for each of us by name. It's for Scott, it's for Shotgun, it's for Roy, it's for Sharice, it's for Elaine. The love of the Father expressed in the Son is for each of us on an intimate level. You see, the threat to the sheep is the threat of evil and sin, those inclinations of our heart that rob us of life and destroy us. 
And motivated by love, Jesus goes to the cross to take upon himself the power of sin that we might have life in him. A life free from those things that easily entangle our hearts and our lives, those things that we wish we would just stop doing and thinking. And Jesus goes first in love for you. He doesn't demand that we earn his love or grace. He simply offers it freely. And this is the quality that distinguishes the good shepherd from all other shepherds who try and lead you in your life. This is the gospel. This love, though, doesn't merely distinguish Jesus as the good shepherd. It, too, is to distinguish the ways and the characteristics of the flock, of the sheep of God. In Ezekiel, the results uh, we read of wicked shepherds, Ezekiel 34 is probably the most significant Old Testament passage that informs our understanding of John chapter 10. In Ezekiel, we discover that there are wicked shepherds who are trying to lead the people of God, leading the, lead, leading the flock And Ezekiel reads this way, describing what happens as a result of those failed, wicked shepherds' leadership. Reads this, So the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. No one looked for the sheep that were scattered because of the failed leadership of wicked shepherds. See, rather than driving the sheep away from one one another, the sheep, according to Jesus, because he is the good shepherd, they become one flock because of the one good shepherd. The love of the good shepherd becomes the vehicle that draws the sheep together as a flock. But what's fascinating, though, is this intriguing statement that Jesus makes before describing the unity of the sheep. You see, in Jesus' day, it would not have been uncommon for shepherds to have their flocks in a single pen. So you would have like one, two, three, four shepherds that would gather all their flocks into a single sheep pen. And this is why Jesus says that the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice, because you could be with multiple flocks of sheep with multiple shepherds, and one shepherd could just speak, and his flock only would leave the pen, the rest would stay. But in explaining this parable, Jesus says this really interesting thing. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. They're not even here yet. They're not in the pen. And he goes on, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. This is a new kind of image. Not one of multiple flocks, but of multiple pens. What is this all about? You see, the original sheep for Jesus, are the people of Israel. And Jesus is calling them and those from among his Jewish contemporaries who are ready for the call to hear his voice, to trust him, and to to come to him. But as Israel's prophets and wise writers had always hinted, the God of Israel was never just interested in Israel. His call to Israel was for the sake of the world. The other sheep in the other pens are the great company from every nation under heaven that God intends to save and to save through the good shepherd who is Jesus Christ himself. And they too will respond to the shepherd's voice. The past few months, I've been um, coaching sort of 
uh, Ventura High School boys varsity soccer team. And part of the reason why I like to coach is one, I like to get my competitive juices out somewhere and where a better place than screaming at teenagers on a soccer field. <laughs> Even, I'm just kidding. I wish I was kidding. I'm mostly kidding. I don't know, but. What fuels, though, much of that effort is this core conviction that those who need to hear the voice of God might not be in our pen. One of the things, I don't know if you caught it in Ezekiel 34 that's so fascinating, there's that parable of the lost sheep. We're all familiar with this. Right before the prodigal son parable. Jesus tells this story of a shepherd who has a flock of 100 and one of them wanders away. And the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one that isn't in the pen. Where did that guy go? We got to go find him. And one of the core convictions that's supposed to animate our life as the community of faith, as the flock, as the sheep of God, is that we leave the pen to find the lost sheep. There are too many times in the church, in the world today, where we're all about the sheep who are in our pen. We got to have all the right religious things to, have all the, to satisfy all the needs and desires of the sheep who are attending our churches. But what about all of the sheep who are not in our pens? What about all of the sheep who long to hear the voice of the shepherd, who long to hear this gospel of love, who long to know the good shepherd who are not sitting in our pews this morning, who have not heard the gospel. We, as a church, have to be a people who are mindful of those who are not in the pen yet. You see, the self-giving love of the good shepherd isn't just for the sheep in this pen, though it is. It's for the nations. It's for everyone. You see, what makes the good shepherd good is his willingness to lay down his life for the sheep. And this, too, ought to mark our lives as well. You see, in a few moments, we're going to participate in communion together. It is a sacrament or it is a, a sort of symbolic act that we participate in where we recognize and we see and we taste the love of God in our lives. But the hope isn't just that we receive the love of God the love of the good shepherd. The hope is that we become the thing that we eat, that we actually become the embodied love of God for the world in this city, in our community, in our church. The self-giving love of the shepherd ought to characterize the sheep and the flock. And perhaps this morning, you needed to be reminded of what makes Jesus our good shepherd. Perhaps you needed to be reminded that the good shepherd loves you by name. My prayer for you this morning is that you may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Perhaps this morning you just need to be reminded that God loves you. Or perhaps you haven't known that in the past and you needed to hear it for the first time that God loves you and gives his life for you. But perhaps we as a church need to be reminded that our shepherd doesn't just love us. He loves our world. He loves our coworkers, even the ones that annoy us. <laughs> he loves our neighbors. He loves the kids on our sports teams. 
Where might we be seeking and finding as a body of Christ? Or where are the ways and the places that we might represent the good shepherd in love for the world that have been scattered? In a few moments, we'll gather together to partake in communion. And I hope that in participating in this meal, you'd be reminded of God's love for you. But that too, you would be reminded that you were to become a vessel and a vehicle of his love in the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the qualities and characteristics that make your son the good shepherd. We're humbled by the reality that he's our good shepherd. And as we participate in this meal this morning, God, we ask that you would grace it with your presence, that in so doing, we would not just receive the body and blood of Christ, but that we would become the broken body and poured out blood of Christ for the world. We declare in our participation of it that we trust you, that we follow you, and that full, abundant life, eternal life is found in you alone. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.